Welcome to this episode of the Research Talk podcast. My name is Helen Clare and I'm your host. Our guest today is Professor Tony Hay and we'll be talking about future research environments. Tony is currently Chief Data Scientist at the Science and Technology Facilities Council, STFC, where he's been since 2015. He originally trained in, as a theoretical physicist at Oxford University, receiving his doctorate in 1970. He spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow in Caltech in California, and then a further two years at CERN in Geneva. He began his university career in 1974 in the physics department of the University of Southampton in the UK, where he eventually became head of department, and his parallel computing research group became one of the leading hardware and software groups worldwide. He left Southampton in 2011, moving to become Corporate Vice President of Microsoft Research until moving to his current role at STFC. As well as being the author of over 150 research papers in particle physics, computing science and e-science, he has co-authored a number of books to improve public understanding of science, including The Quantum Universe, Einstein's Mirror, and most recently, The Computing Universe, A Journey Through a Revolution. Welcome, Tony. Really pleased to have you here today. Very nice to be here. I've given a brief overview of your career, but it would be great just to start off with a, a little summary of, of your background and um, your professional interests and what's driven you throughout your career. Okay, so um, I, I spent uh, undergraduate and graduate at Oxford, as you said, uh, and uh, then I had a life-changing move. I got a Harkness Fellowship to go to Caltech for a postdoc. And in Caltech, there were two of the most famous Nobel Prize winners in physics in the group that I went to, uh, Murray Gell-Mann and Richard Feynman. And Richard Feynman became an inspiration for me, essentially for the rest of my life. So he, he was really an inspiration in the way he taught, the way he, he, he explained things, in the way he interacted with, with people and students. So uh, I'm a Feynman groupie in that sense. Your biography was almost right. Uh, I, I was in physics uh, and I was doing quantum chromodynamics on computers. And then I got more interested in computers. So I moved to electronics and computer science and I became head of that department. But it was because I got in the end more interested in building computers uh, than actually doing the physics on them. And uh, in those days, you had to have several million to buy a vector supercomputer, uh, or what we did was put together lots of little chips, microprocessors, and build a parallel computer. But then, of course, you had to break your program up into lots of little pieces and distribute it across the machine and send messages. And that was what, that's how I got started in computing. The, the only other thing I, I would say, I, I was extremely fortunate to um, to lead the UK's e-science program, which I would claim is really uh, about the impact of data. It's big data on science. So data-intensive science is what it was about. And we're still doing that, but now we're adding the AI and machine learning pieces. And I was fortunate then to go to Microsoft for 10 years in Microsoft Research, where I saw at first hand the deep learning revolution. And, and that is what's driving things nowadays. So. Uh, I've had uh, a series of lucky accidents, I would say. So it's fascinating how careers sort of pan out and the twists and turns they take. Um, so we're here to talk about research environments and how would you describe the research environments today and what do you feel is lacking? I, I would call research environment as, as the computers, the networks, the data and equally important, the people. So what we have at the moment, we have, let's talk about the UK, we have a number of, of, of computers, we have a, a national supercomputer, which uh, is not competitive on a world scale, but it is actually a, a major resource. Um, we have networks, and that is something that GIS provides. 
Uh, and then we have data and what we're seeing now almost everywhere, we're seeing large amounts of data in experiments, in, in, in supercomputing calculations, and also I would say in the publication deluge. So I'll come back to that later. So and using clever techniques like AI and machine learning will help us do that. But we're in the beginning of that. Uh, and, and lastly, the people I think are very important. And I would put software engineers, I would put data scientists, and I would also put librarians for doing research data management. But that's my personal view. So I think there's a lot of work to do on each of these elements to take us to the next level. As a former librarian, I'm happy to hear you say that. <laughs> um, so you've spoken a lot about the role of artificial intelligence in scientific research, but what role do you, exactly do you see AI taking? Okay, so I, I should explain the context of which I use AI. AI is a whole set of technologies from symbolic AI, where you, you prove theorems and, and do clever things with robots and stuff, to an area of AI called machine learning, where you actually learn from the data and you can actually train a system to go and actually analyze the data, look at an image to tell whether it's a letter two or a letter three, for example. Um, uh, and then the latest thing, it's another subset of machine learning is this thing called deep learning, which are based on neural networks, which are one of many machine learning techniques. But these have been shown to be these, instead of having just a, an input layer and an output layer, you have many intermediate layers in this neural network, which is sort of vaguely modeled on, on the neurons in your brain. What you can do is, and what was shown in, in, in 2012, you can actually do better than anybody, any other algorithm in recognizing images, in recognizing whether it's a poodle or a collie or a, or a cat or a bird and and it does better than humans now you can get deep learning networks which have as many as a hundred intermediate layers and you can train them so that they do better recognition than humans and that's really been the breakthrough in 2012 we've been doing ai for many many years but the big breakthrough was in deep learning for big image data sets and that was in 2012, led by Jeffrey Hinton and his group in Canada. So what, what would your vision be for future research environments and how would AI fit with that? Okay, so I've talked about what AI is in the context. It's mainly machine learning and a lot of deep learning. And now we're seeing it done in all aspects. It's done in particle physics at the LHC experiments. They use it for analyzing the data, but they also use it for optimizing the machine, reducing the downtime, making sure it's, it's focused better. Uh, and we do that at the national lab where I work. Um, uh, I'm data scientist for STFC, but I work at the National Lab at Harwell, just outside Oxford. We have another National Lab at Darsby, just outside Manchester, which uh, focuses on supercomputing. At Harwell, we focus on, on big experiments that you can't afford to do at a university. So we have a, the diamond light source, we have ISIS neutron sources, and so on. Uh, and these generate now petabytes of data a year. And so the scientist comes and does an experiment and you can't go home now carrying your data on a USB stick. You really need to move it onto uh, a network. So what you need is help in AI in all aspects of this. It isn't just from analyzing the data. It's also for optimizing the machines that produce the data, optimizing the workflows. All along the line, you have uh, you will see AI becoming embedded and uh, that's for experimental data analysis, but it's also in 
material science, you're using it for theory, and there's some wonderful work just recently in, in protein folding and in uh, what's called density functional theory for, for material science done by Google's DeepMind subsidiary in London, and they've really revolutionized what you can do with these AI techniques. So what challenges can you see being faced along the way to, to developing these sorts of environments? Well, just to take the last example I, I raised, the deep mind, in order to train the network, you need a huge amount of computing power. Now, Google uh, and Amazon and Microsoft and, and so on have these resources, but it's difficult to see that academics can compete in that space. And so I do think there is a need to figure out how we can get resources so academics can also use these techniques to do huge amounts of computing for the training session. Once you've done that, you can use the train network on a laptop and things like that. So it's very easy to use, but you have to train the network and doing it on big machines is what's needed. And that actually is lacking in the UK at the moment. We don't have systems with large numbers of accelerators. Uh, I should have said something about uh, high performance computing. Uh, we're seeing now a convergence of high-performance computing where you solve things like computational fluid dynamics flowing across an aircraft and things like that, flows across an aircraft or engine and things like that, uh, to using AI. And uh, because you now cannot get to the next milestone in supercomputing, which is the exascale milestone, so there's teraflops, megaflops, initially gigaflops, teraflops, petaflops, and now we want to get to exaflops, which are a, a huge number of floating point operations per second. And you can't get there just by scaling up the machines that we have at the moment, because you'd need to build a power station next to your computer. So the only way we'll get to exascale is by using um, special chips called accelerators. They're like GPUs you see in your game PC, and they're very adapted for doing some parts of the calculations that you need to do. But of course, you have to rewrite your code. Uh, and so uh, we're seeing an HPC AI convergence in supercomputing, and, and that is requiring new skills and requires people to actually understand how to use these machines, both for AI and for supercomputing. And that's, I think, where we are at the moment. We don't have enough people to rewrite the codes and we have to train people how to use the codes. And then we have to train people how to use these AI techniques on their data to actually get scientific results, which are, are novel and new, like, like DeepMind are doing. So I think we have a challenge for academics to be able to compete with, with, with labs like Google's DeepMind, which are doing wonderful work. How, how do academics compete? It's true in the US and true in the UK. Uh, how, how can we provide academics with resources which are comparable to those available in industry? So that obviously sounds quite quite challenging to get to this this future. How long do you think it will it'll take to get to get there? Well, I mean, I think the, in the US uh, they're trying to get to the exascale computing limit. We haven't got there yet, but we're nearly there, and they hope to deliver their first exascale machine next year. So it's pretty close. In the UK, we are considering buying exascale or pre-exascale machines, but it isn't sufficient you need also to train people so it remains to be seen what what, what happens from the government's 
uh, funding for, for science, and in particular for the digital research infrastructure. How much money is there to enable us to be competitive and to be a partner with these larger organizations that you see in the States and, and Europe and, and, and Japan? So I think we need, to be, we need to be a partner and we need to have some clear specialities that make us valuable as a partner. And, and working that out is a real challenge for science community. There's a challenge for JISC um, in providing networks, which will enable you to send your data over the network instead of going home carrying armfuls of terabyte disks from your experiment, which you don't want to do. So we need to get our networks so we can support that. And we've been working with a colleague of my ex-colleague of mine, Tim Chown in JISC, uh, looking at what we've been calling research data transfer zones, which is a bit more of a user-friendly title than the, the US equivalent, which is called a science DMZ, demilitarized zone. Right. And the idea is that if you're sending data from CERN, you can't put it through your firewall because it, it slows it down. So you actually recognize it outside the firewall and say, oh, this is a data packet from CERN. And you put it into an enclave, which is outside your firewall. And then you, you act, can access it uh, securely from within the firewall uh, when you need to. So that's what the particle physicists have done, although they called it a firewall bypass, which I don't think is, is quite... The, the term you want to use. So uh, research data transfer zones are a piece of the future and using AI to optimize how you actually get the data across, how you produce the data and how you analyze the data, it will be, these techniques will be everywhere, the AI techniques, but you do need to move data efficiently. You've mentioned uh, skills and training a couple of times there, and that's a, a subject that's close to my heart. It's the area that I work on within JISC. Is it, could you expand a little bit more about, about the skills that, that researchers will need and maybe other other staff across universities? Yes, yeah, and no, I was at Microsoft and Microsoft are often lambasted for producing unreliable code, but actually they, according to industry standards, they actually have fewer errors per million lines of code than other companies, but uh, they have problems because they have such a large footprint, but they have huge amounts of training, effort and, and testing that they put into producing their code. And in academia, we rely on these codes, and they're typically scientists who wrote some codes as a PhD. They haven't been trained in software engineering, and we need actually to increase the skill base of what's called research software engineers. They are essential for making this thing work uh, uh, and the science work. And so research software engineers are an extremely important part of the ecosystem. Similarly, data scientists, they may not be going to uh, invent the next AI algorithm, but they are going to be able to use them correctly help scientists analyze the data and get science from huge amounts of data where you need to recognize rather interesting patterns in the data you can learn by using these techniques and you need people who can do that and and lastly uh, one of the things that just set up was the uh, data curation center up in edinburgh which produced for example one of the first data management plans but of course, nobody monitors the data management plan to say you did what you, you did. We need to do that. But we also need librarians to make sure that they work with scientists in order to get the metadata into a useful form that you can do analysis on. Because you can do AI and clever techniques, but you do need to have the data with the metadata in a form which is appropriate. And so I think there's a major role 
for librarians. Uh, on our university library where I live in Southampton, it says, you know, lattes, coffee bar. Well, yes, you can turn libraries into places where they can warm places to work, do your Wi-Fi, chat to your friends, have a cup of coffee. But that's not what a library needs to be. It should be central to the research enterprise of an institution. And it will only do that if it really recognizes that it needs to change and actually have a different role and work you know, remember subject librarians many years ago? Well, they need to be now reinvented as research data managers. And I attended a very interesting conference called the Library Technology Conclave in Bangalore in, in January of last year. Uh, and, and there they have really got this emphasis on research data management as a role for libraries. Absolutely. And so uh, I think that is something that needs to be done and that requires training and, and so on. And then we require clever tools that can actually determine whether you got your grant, you said you do this for your data. Did you actually do it? And you'd like to have tools that will actually help the, the, the funders say, well, you didn't do it. So we're not going to give you another grant until you do it. And, and that's, as far as I can see, is the only effective way uh, of getting compliance. I mean, it's been demonstrated with PubMed Central, which is the National Library of Medicine in the US for biomedical publications. And they made it voluntary that you had to have your full text of your paper into PubMed Central if you got a grant from the National Institutes of Health. And they had 20% compliance. Then they made it compulsory and they got 70%. But they didn't get up to essentially 100% until they said, well, we're going to delay your next grant until you actually have got this in there. And now they have essentially 100. So I think we need to do something similar, but we need clever tools to do that. So lots of stuff to do. Yes. Lots of training, and I think it's important. Well, you mentioned a couple of things there, the Digital Curation Centre and the role of librarians. Um, I'm actually working with colleagues um, as part of European projects, and it, the role of the data steward is really emerging. Um, across Europe, and we've been looking recently at how how to support the development of that role in the in the UK too. Well, I would thoroughly support that. Yes, I, I, mm -hmm. I think it's important. Uh, and I, colleagues, MIT, Mackenzie Smith, who's now in California, DSpace was was the thing that she was doing at MIT, and now she's actually a librarian at Davis University, California, and she's also uh, looking at this role. And so there are many, others, yeah. but not enough yet. <laughs> no, no. Okay, just just coming back to the um, use of artificial intelligence and the ethics around that. Um, how can researchers ensure that the AI, AI that they use uh, remains ethical? I mean, is that even possible? Okay, no, that's an interesting question and one that I have deliberately up to now avoided by choosing to work with scientific data. So the data I work with at the National Lab is actually science data and we're in a very open community of, of researchers and we share data and things like this with acknowledgements and stuff. And I've avoided dealing with personal data, which has personal identification. So in medicine, you have to worry about these things. And I think there are real challenges there. Uh, I think you can do some things and you can produce ethical things, but ethical examples, and you can have a set of rules. The difficulty comes for a nation is that I see a lot of emphasis on ethical AI, and it's a good thing to do. But actually, you know that 
certain parts of the world, I won't name them, they're sort of obvious, they do attacks on, on the Western world all the time, cyber attacks, and they are not ethical, and they will use unethical weapons. And in order to actually be able to do counter and to stop these, you will need some people looking at unethical AI. In academia, I hope, ethical AI, and I think it's important in, in medical and, and, and health applications. But I see also there will be people who have to work on unethical AI, just like you need black hat and white hat hackers. So you need, you know, in the white hats have to make sure you can protect it against the hackers who are trying to steal the data from your computer. So yes, I see that the people will do some things protecting people's data and stuff, which is obviously what you should do. But I also see that there are major challenges. We've talked about the advancement of AI um, in research, but what would be the implications, not just for researchers, but perhaps for the the global community of these advancements? Well, uh, okay, so... I think we need more advances in AI in that, just to take an example, I talked about PubMed Central of the National Library of Medicine in the US. There's also PubMed, which collects abstracts. Now, in and that's just for the bio, biomedical literature. And there are two abstracts a minute deposited every minute of every hour, of every hour, of every day, of every day of the year. And there's no way that scientists can deal with that. And what you need to have is some clever systems which can actually pick out the things that are important, pick out the data sets which are relevant, because what's what's brilliant about the National Library of Medicine is you have the full text of the article, you have the links to the data sets, and you have other data bases there, and you can do a, a search. They have a tool called Entree, which enables you to search among all the databases, and you can work from the paper you just wrote, see what other people have done, and you can actually do research sitting at your desk without taking more data. You can actually put things together that people haven't done before. So I think finding out what papers are relevant, maybe what papers are wrong even, right? which you know, I think there's a lot of work needed, and that's really much more conventional AI systems than the deep learning I've been talking about for analyzing large image data sets, for example. So certainly in tools for doing literature, stopping us drowning in literature. We're drowning in experimental data, but we're also drowning in literature. And we need to... to it's, it's curious that um, Vannevar Bush, who led the sort of science applications in the Second World War for the US, wrote a, an article called As We May Think, which is usually revered by most librarians, in which he envisaged, this is just after the war, 47, uh, and he envisaged the future where there was so much research that in order to get to the, the frontier, you had to follow the follow an expert through all this thing, and then you'd get to the frontier and figure these things out. And that was an inspiration both for Doug Engelbart, the guy who invented the mouse, and for Ted Nelson, who was the precursor to the World Wide Web with these linked documents. And so Tim Berners-Lee was inspired by that. And that's Tim Berners-Lee is the, is the vision that, that Vannevar Bush had for actually finding relevant data, getting to the frontier, knowing what's relevant. And we need to do something. We need to reinvent that. We need to actually make it intelligent. And there are challenges all the way. Okay, so we've talked a lot about changes in, in future research environments. Um, but are there any areas of research that you think should remain unchanged? Ooh, unchanged. <laughs> um, well, I think there's always, 
you know, there's always room for an Einstein or two looking at theory. I think science is in an interesting point at the moment in that I think we think we understand the fundamental laws, the electromagnetic gravity, electromagnetism, uh, and the strong interactions and the weak interactions are the, are the forces uh, of nature. And we think there aren't any more, but, but they arrive now in complex contexts. So the frontiers of, of science which I don't think require AI, are, for example, putting quantum mechanics together with gravity to make sure we have actually a quantum gravity solution, which we don't have at the moment. So there's a purely theoretical thing which may have implications in the future. Um, and that's an important area. Uh, and there are other areas where I think you will want to, to do analysis of complex systems, uh, which involves computers and stuff, but not necessarily AI. So I think that people are looking at those, uh, and maybe AI can help on some of those, but I, I think there are still areas of pure theoretical science, which don't need AI at this minute, they need inspiration. And also, to be fair, they need signatures of data to show that something's wrong. At the moment, we have this standard model uh, of all these four interactions I talked about, which, as far as we see, it, it, there aren't any deviations from that. And unless we get a clue as to what's wrong, where, where we might produce something, I think we need some data which actually shows we have all these puzzles at the moment about dark matter, we have dark energy, we need some clues. And at the moment, we don't have those. If we can just finish up, maybe um, you mentioned earlier uh, a role for JISC in, in the network side. Of, and other, could you expand a bit more on perhaps how, how JISC could support these future environments? Well, I think JISC is getting there. But, but uh, um, in, in the US, I, I, I've worked a lot in the US and uh, they have uh, Energy Sciences Network, which is a very advanced network uh, led by the national labs in the US, Berkeley in particular. Uh, and they, they pioneered this thing of moving data from their labs to another lab because they'd have the big accelerators just like they have at Harwell, Rutherford Lab. Uh, and that's the research DMZ, they call it. Um, and, and they have actually partnered with the, so that's the Department of Energy who fund those, but they partnered with the NSF. So NS, it's no use having a data transfer zone so you can send the data. You have to have one at the other end so they can get it. So, for example, Diamond can send data to I don't know, Manchester or whatever, but Manchester has to have a place to put it when it arrives coming in streaming at high, high speed. Uh, and uh, in the US, the National Science Foundation has funded over 100 universities to put that in to their local infrastructure. So I see nobody doing that here. I mean, just beginning at the moment, Tim Chown uh, 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 has been working uh, on, on trying to raise awareness of, of these research data transfer zones. So I think that's important because I think the GIST backbone is, is pretty good, but I think it needs to be expanded with, with, with the capability for moving data rapidly. And I think that would really, really help research. Uh, and then there's, although the Data Curation Center is now no longer part of JISC, it seems to me there is a role there for doing it. And then the, the whole open science activity is, I think, something that JISC should play a leading role uh, in, in helping, possibly in the training or raising awareness. Uh, and I, no, I, I've been encouraged by JISC. I have worked with JISC for oh, 20 years or more, and, and uh, it, it has played a vital role in my view. So I, I'm hoping that it will continue to do so. And so things like 
data management plans and helping funding councils monitor them, compliance and so on, and also searching data streams, maybe actually doing something. For example, in the National Library of Medicine, they have a thing called PubTata, which is not a great name, but that's what they call it. PubTata Central enables you to go and annotate the, the, the papers in PubMed Central with concepts, not just keywords, but concepts. And so you need to do better than that, but that's at least a start. And, and I think that uh, I, I think that JISC and the library community can really do something really quite exciting. But, but it does require uh, vision and money and, and people to implement it. And I, I agree that's a challenge. So um, just to wrap up now, um, what's next for you in terms of sort of key activities that you're working on? Well, uh, it does really depend on the magnitude uh, of the settlement for science that we will hear about in the next month or two months or three months or four months. I don't know quite when that, that, that settlement will come out, but how much are they going to invest in the digital research infrastructure? That's, that's really a, a, a vital challenge, and it covers all research councils. So next week, I'm actually uh, at a meeting of the NERP Digital Research Infrastructure Committee. And so they have their big data centers. How are they going to, what do they need, and so on? It, it's, that's an interesting debate. And similarly, BBSRC have been looking at had a recent conference on AI for science. And so they're looking at all these things. So I think there's a great potential, and I think GIST could be a, a useful partner in, in with the research councils because we should all be acting together in the same direction and so having a, a, a coherent vision as to what we want from our research infrastructure we want competitive computing resources for both the AI and for HPC we don't necessarily need to have the world's fastest but we have to have something which is competitive for our scientists we need networks which are competitive doesn't have to be as good as the US but it has to enable scientists to move data around when they need to uh, and we have to actually worry about data management and and how you actually do your data management plan and, and how you implement it. Where do you store the data? You go back to your university with many terabytes of data. Where do you put it? doesn't fit on your laptop. And you know, there are scary stories about the data that you take at these places. Only 10% is ever looked at. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's, an, you know, that's a, a scurrilous, apocryphal, possibly apocryphal story. But I, I can well believe that, that actually people don't know how to deal with these huge data sets. So there's a lot of work to be done. And, and I think really the research library part of a library at the university needs to get involved in that and actually make sure that they can actually play a useful role and in principle be once again at the center of the research enterprise of a university. And I think there's a danger that you could set up a university now, you don't bother with the library, you just have all the journals online. I think it's more than that. So I think you need to actually have a vision for the library. Thanks, Tony. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. No, thank you very much for your time too. Thanks very much, Jess. Thanks.